Hello and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures, who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode. Right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Shape the System. We're talking about food today, food waste, maybe. Sadi, who's joined us from Subpod, as I was saying to him just before we jumped on, I've been a long-time observer and fan and supporter of what you're doing, and I want to talk about the product and, and just Subpod generally a bit later on, obviously, but what I would want to first do, as we always do, is dive into the problem space, the place where you find yourselves. So, Sadi, if, if you don't mind, maybe just introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about where you guys play, and we'll dive deeper into that to get started. Thanks, Vincent. Look, I'm, I'm really happy to be here and having listened to a number of your podcasts before, I uh, really enjoy the way that you think and, and the questions that, that you ask. So excited for, for this talk. Yeah, the, the problem space really where, where Subpod is playing in is, is, is around waste and food waste specifically and thinking about how in our everyday life people can engage and connect with the natural systems that turn waste in a re- into a resource. Mm-hmm. And the subpod is essentially a composting product that we've developed to tell people to compost at home without smells and mess and hassle, right. make it very easy to do that in a home environment. And also we have our systems that scale up to commercial level composting, but you're essentially composting in a garden bed in a system that's can insulated by the soil and creates an environment that is really working with nature and biomimicry is is one of those areas that I'm particularly interested in so my approach is nature's done three and a half odd billion years worth of R&D on <laughs> turning waste into a resource and and if we can work with that system rather than trying to develop other ways to do it then then we're probably ahead right. And really the, the work that we do has come out of, you know, there's a lot of talk about recycling. There's a lot of talk about the circular economy mm-hmm. and it's quite a compelling concept for people who dig into it, but it can be co- quite hard for people to understand really what a closed loop system is or what the circular economy is where you're, you're not trying to just use something and then dispose of it and it ends up in landfill. You're trying to turn waste into a resource um, and and subpod is really a, a simplified home version of that where you've got your garden bed that's fed by the waste you're putting into your system mm-hmm. the plant roots feed on the nutrients that that are created in there um, and you're able to turn your your food waste into a resource at home and your benefit is growing healthy plants and quite often for most of the people it's growing healthy food right which is, you know, an important thing, I think, in the world to, even if you're doing it just on a small level at home, it, it gets you thinking about things like supply chains and about where your food comes from and why it's important. So that's really the context that, that we're working in. Okay. I want to I come back a step to, I'm always keen to quantify the scope and the scale of this. I mean, we, the numbers may be specific just to Australia, but we can obviously take a 2% of our population and whatever that is, 50 exit and scale it up to global proportions. But when we think about a household, 
what is there, 11 million households in Australia, probably some, somewhere in that order of magnitude. Give me a uh-huh. sense of the amount of what I would call compostable output that's happening from each, you know, output might be the wrong word, that's happening from each of these households. What's the scale of this problem? And then also what happens today to that waste and why is that a problem? Sure. So in terms of household food waste, it is quite a big problem in Australia. We have on average 300 kilos of food waste person in a household in Australia. Per year. Per year. So it's it's costing um, Australian households up to $2,500 a year in in wasted food. And what happens with that food, by and large, it ends up in landfill. And of course, there are council areas that have green waste collection and and large-scale composting systems. However, when you start talking to waste specialists about the economics of trucking food waste around to to move it from a household to these large facilities, it starts to look a a bit scary right. um, from an economic standpoint. It doesn't work. Standpoint. <laughs> it doesn't I think work. You're being you, diplomatic here. <laughs> yeah. So you've got up to 80% of food waste is water right. by content. Right. Um, so shipping water around really doesn't work. And there's impacts, of course, on the roads and infrastructure from truck movements. Sure. And so dealing with it on site is seen as the gold standard. Right. And that's really what we're trying to get across with the work we, we do with Subpod mm. is that, hey, this is a really big problem, but it's a problem that you can play a part in solving. And that's a message I think that's important for people to feel like they're part, it's not just them on their own. So that's why we talk a lot about community and we have our composting community and and we share stats about how much food waste we're offsetting as a community. Because if you're doing it on your own and sometimes it might feel insignificant, but once you realise, hey, there's 50 to 60,000 other people doing this with this system and together we're offsetting thousands of tons of, of CO2 equivalents, it starts to to feel like, hey, this is, this is something this that's is worth doing. Just, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember one of the stats I read, but when you spoke about tons that your community, I'm going to use that word rather than <laughs> customers, uh, have actually collectively removed from from landfill or essentially diverted away from it is it's already in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of tons isn't it? some ridiculous number already is that right yeah so co2 equivalents per year in terms of emissions it's over fourteen thousand tons a year that our community collectively when we average out usage of, of systems is, is offsetting yeah. or avoiding the emissions yes yeah. and in terms of the the actual food waste. I'm having a slightly blank moment <laughs> in terms of the, the kilos, but I know it's over 3,000 garbage truck fulls as <laughs> the, the average garbage truck is one, nine, nine tons. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, excellent. I, I do want to talk more about community because I think there's a thing here that we don't often connect with as either individuals, but also as founders setting up things, especially for impact things, is the importance of feeling like you're part of some movement. But I think there's more to it than that. There's like I, I think humans have always learned in in a social context, and so much of what we know how to do, we know through interactions with others or observing what's working for others. And an example I can think of at home: I'm in a cold environment in the Blue Mountains, renting and trying to work out what I could do to make my house warmer. I'm not in control of a lot of the things that would be the obvious levers, like solar and all these types of things. And so someone said, uh, you should put seals on your doors. Like it's about $4 to buy these things from Bunnings. You can do it yourself. Every, any renter can do it. They're not going to have a problem with doing it. And it probably made about a 
20% difference, I reckon, to energy and, and usage. And it wasn't, if, but for lack of community, was was hard to get that information. Do you find that that's a big part of how the community operates, is that they're not only here for the support and, you know, being part of a larger movement, but actually helping people to understand practically how this stuff might work for them? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a, a really important point for any type of behaviour change yeah. that you're trying to ha- make happen in the world. We're social animals and we learn through mimicry and we learn through pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And so by making people think, hey, this is normal, look, other people are doing it, it, it breaks down a barrier. Yeah. And so we, we do that in our business by from day one before we even had the product out there, we, we started an online community. Really? that it's not not on Facebook. We do have users who've set up Facebook groups, yep. but we have our own platform called GrowHub, which has over 20,000 users and we have free courses and education and there's a, a social element so people can jump on there and ask questions or get advice from the community and, and from the team here as well. So we're, we're really trying to to make people feel like they're, they're part of something and they're supported uh, with the journey and this is a normal thing yeah, to I do. Yeah, again, I hit you up the other day, I think on one of your LinkedIn posts, and I was like, I love the product, but I'm in a cold place and I rent. How am I going to make this work? And you're like, well, go here and here's all the things you can grow in cold places and you can take this one with you so you can have it. And, and it kind of, it wasn't that it stopped me from having excuses, but it kind of normalized that there's probably a solution for that. You just don't think that there is and and that, that was just a fascinating part of it. Just I, I want to come back to kind of the context as to why this is important now, just in the in the context of food waste as a system. But I'm but yeah. I am also interested in this idea that you kind of started with community. Did you start with community and say we care about food waste? Let's talk to people about growing their own food and having more connectivity to the food system generally, or supply chain of food, whatever whatever the right term is. And then Subpod came along as a product. How do, how did that arc of a story actually happen? Look, we had the prototype. So I worked with a designer who came up with the original hand-built prototypes of Subpod mm-hmm. and, and that was clearly there as the product pathway. Right. But we, it was a highly ambitious, foolhardy <laughs> adventure in the, in the beginning and, and we needed people to get on board. So at, in the early days, Andrew Hayem de Vries, who was the original designer, would go and, and sit out the front of a local health food shop who had some garden beds and his prototypes and run composting workshops for people before you could buy the product. And we just continued with that as we we kind of moved on in the journey and we had to create the story to actually fund the product. The, the original Subpod Classic that we have now, the larger version that I had to kind of take that from a, this even bigger system that Andrew had into something we could manufacture. But even then that was over a quarter of a million dollars just for the mold itself Really, well, before we could um, start producing these. And so we use crowdfunding by and large to, to fund yeah. that. And so creating that community of people who wanted to get behind and support that was, was really key to being able to, to meet that ambitious goal of actually making Subpod a commercial product yeah. that, that you could go and buy. Yeah. And so that, that's why community has been important to us from day one. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, my sense from talking to you prior to even jumping on is that you've kind of always been quite community-minded or have grown up in a context where there was kind of a shared, kind of a collective view of the world. Is that, I might be, you know, stretching a bit here, but is that, am I reading that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I, 
grew up in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, where I still live, uh, which was kind of ground central for the for the alternative living and multiple occupancy <laughs> movement, yeah. lifestyle movement back in the seventies and eighties. Everything else, everything. So, yeah, when I was born, my folks were living on a intentional Buddhist community and lived on a couple of others, and and so that that was the context I grew up in right. and and all of these practices around sustainability. It was the beginning of the permaculture movement. Uh-huh. Bodhi Farm, the community that, that we were living on when I was born, was home to some of the people who started the first solar power company in Australia, Rainbow Power. And so we had microgrids supplying power from a, a micro hydro system that they built on the creek and yeah, right. people building methane toilet digesting toilets and <laughs> all kinds of things back in the you know so the, was back in the inevitable which kind of where you're going with that <laughs> well yeah so it, i guess that's just been my context <laughs> and i've tried to to do work around that yeah taking those kind of things i grew up with as normal out into the the wider world and connecting people to nature well and that was kind of going to be my follow-up question to that which was what you grew up with in the 80s i think you were saying that was in the 80s Um, and 90s i guess was not the norm and you know i would say to most people are not growing up necessarily in that kind of household environment but the zeitgeist certainly has changed in the last 30 or 40 years where we've had this yeah a large shift for people being you know far more intentional in what they're doing or more educated or more conscious of making decisions that are aligned to their values. So I'm interested in those trends, but I'm also interested as part of this as well being that people, I mean, if you look at say China as a good, really kind of standout example, a massive shift from an agrarian society into the cities. And this has been happening globally for the last 50 years. Is part of this also the impetus for why food waste is becoming more and more of a problem. We're separated from where our food is grown and have no connectivity and we're also in an environment where we kind of can't do anything with it because we're living in a high-rise apartment so we kind of have to just turf it because that's we think that's our only option. Is that a little bit of what's at play here at a much larger macro level? Yeah, definitely. And it it's beyond just the fact that, oh, this is a problem. There's also as you start to, you're starting to see more and more this idea of connecting with nature and maybe a bit more of the romanticism about nature that, that was really part of the, the conservation movement starting back in the, the 1800s in America with the National Parks Movement. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, some, that's a key thing for a lot of people living in cities is how do we connect with nature? How do we have green spaces in our life? And that feeling of I might be missing out on something if I don't have some kind of literacy. So even people who don't have that for themselves are really wanting it for their children and wanting to find ways to have that in their lives. And part of my hypothesis, which led to Subpod being what it is today, was that we saw this boom in nature-based lifestyle brands kind of starting in the 70s and 80s with the likes of, of Patagonia, North Face, the Australian surf brands like Quicksilver, Billabong coming in and saying, hey, go and connect with nature, it's great. Go and climb a rock, walk a trail, <laughs> jump on a wave. Whatever it is. <laughs> all of those, those things that have created these massive movements mm. and, and really cultures and my thinking has been, and, and I, I'm hoping we've got the timing somewhat right, is that it's time for for movements that still have that connection to nature, but instead of consumption of nature, it's recognising we're part of the ecosystem and that by 
doing things like gardening and composting and, and having a bit of eco-literacy, we can have a, a much more nuanced relationship with nature, which can be really deeply rewarding in many ways. Like there's, a, there's many studies out there around forest bathing and those types of things for mental health. And then there's right. also work done around soil microbes and how they can affect your mental health in positive ways and, and things as well. So that's really the, the idea is make, make things like composting and gardening as cool as wanting to go for a surf. <laughs> yeah, or a compliment to going for a surf, perhaps. I think there's, I mean, you raise a really interesting point because I think so much of how, like when I grew up, you would go out and go surfing or, you know, bodyboarding in my case, but it was never a thought of, hey, isn't it great to be out in nature? It was there's this amazing experience out here and it happens well, to be in nature, but that those was almost fortuitous that those things were happening. I, I had a lettuce, uh, I think a romaine lettuce that was in the fridge the other day and I was like, you know what, I'm going to see if I can stick this on the windowsill. It's not minus two degrees today. And it started growing and the amount of happiness and joy that came from observing this lettuce come back to life on my windowsill, I was like, oh, I've got to be doing, <laughs> I've got to be doing more of this. I'm curious, like taking the last 40 years, obviously as kind of a general trend and you set an awakening in being not just out in nature, but actually starting to interact with nature in maybe more of a symbolic way. Has some of that accelerated in the last two years? You just spoke about the timing right now. Is that relating to what's happened in the last two years, do you think? Yeah, look, I think it it has definitely accelerated last couple of years, maybe a bit longer than, than two years. I mean, the previous business I was involved in had a similar ethos and it seemed quite on the edge um, back in 2015 when we launched that one and getting to kind of 2018-19 started to feel like, okay, there's there's a much more critical mass here of people who are thinking about preserving biodiversity, who are concerned about natural ecosystems, species loss, all of, all of these things. So they're looking for something tangible that they can do in their own life beyond just signing another online petition. Yeah. Um, and, and so... <laughs> Which yeah, feels COVID kind of really disempowering in a that. lot of ways, I think. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, and and I think we did see a big acceleration over COVID of people wanting to get out in the garden and, and having time to do that. And so that was quite interesting for us as a business launching in that time to experience that. Yeah. And you, you spoke before about like right up front, we were talking about the context here and you sort of said food waste. And I think that's kind of a, there's a very linear connection between subpod and food waste obviously because there's waste and we'll put it here and we'll turn it into food but these other kind of adjacencies are really interesting as well i think this idea that the idea that someone would become more interested in the food supply chain like it just sounded hilarious when you said it right up front because i'm like how many people wake up and go mm, food supply chain i'm massively curious about this but when you start to see food leave your plate and go into a bin but instead of going into a bin go into the ground and then produce more food is the thinking here that, or, or your observation even, that people start to actually st- think more broadly about where their food's coming from, what food they're consuming and the quality of the food and I guess the way in which that food was created. Is that kind of, the, is it a kind of a gateway to, to a much broader and deeper thought process for an individual or is it coming the other way? Yeah, look, we definitely see see it as a gateway and, and that's borne out in a lot of the feedback that we get from people who start to become more conscious. I mean, what, one of the joys of using our systems is that once you have a few things going in your garden, they're just going to keep coming up and people might be picking a tomato and tasting it 
and realizing there's another experience to be had with tomatoes that might be different from the one they have when they they go and get the cheapest ones they can. So definitely people are starting to think a bit more about where their food come is coming from. And also we get feedback quite a lot that from, which is a funny one to me, but a number of people have mentioned that they start thinking about the food they're eating because they want to make sure that their worms in their subpot <laughs> kind of become like pets and they're like, oh, well, maybe the worms wouldn't like that. So <laughs> I was trying to work out where you were going to go with that. That's amazing. By the way, just so there's a visual here for other people who are listening, you have a shirt that says plant seeds and sing songs and it's just framing our conversation perfectly for me at the moment. So just want to make sure everyone else has got that visual. Okay, so you've got people who really start to think about the connection to the <laughs> to the food supply. I want to. It sounds like an odd segue, but I, I kind of want to understand. It's kind of two related to part A and a part B. I'm curious as to why someone buys a subpod, and do they think I want to do my part here, and here's a way to do it, or is there some kind of romantic notion which is kind of what sparks the idea? And then they attach or rationalize it or post rationalize it in some kind of economic thing of, hey, if I do this thing, like I might make some food that would, I wouldn't otherwise have to buy and it'd be fresher anyway. Like, how, what's the process someone's going through, do you think, when, when Subpod becomes the solution to this thing that they are encountering? Look, I think there's a few different, I guess, if you want to get into marketing talk, customer avatars out there. So we've got the people who are really there because they're motivated by wanting to to do something positive. They they really want to have a, a practice in their life that that makes them feel like they're doing something that that is good for the planet. And by diverting their food waste, that's that's one piece of the puzzle for them. And Often they might not be able to afford Tesla Powerwall and a, an electric car and, and those types of things, but methane is a huge driver of of global warming. In the, in the short term, it's going to drive a lot uh-huh. more than CO2 just because it's heating effect and methane is the major gas that's emitted from food waste breaking down in landfill. And there are quite a lot of people who are conscious of that. Then we ha- do have a lot of people who are there because they're gardeners and they just want the best out of their garden and the best productivity and they're really looking after their soil. And then also there's there's kind of the, we call them the urban foodies, people who may be really into cooking with amazing fresh produce yeah. from the farmer's market mm. and, and they want to be more engaged with that type of soil to, to plate experience and have learnt, I mean, if you go on on Netflix these days, you'll see documentaries like Fantastic Fungi that talk about the soil, like the mycelium networks and soil food web or some of the the other documentaries around soil regeneration. And so people are experiencing these things in the popular culture and want to want to be involved. And, and I think that there's that hunger there that how do I get involved in this? So yeah, it's quite a broad quite a, range of motivation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I'm curious as well just in terms of it doesn't sound like any of this is narrow to a particular age range either. There's all range of age of people or people who are multi-generational where it's like I'm going to get one of these because I want my children to know about this stuff and be more aware of this kind of stuff. I'm guessing you see that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, over 50% of people who start composting with subpod it's their first time really trying composting and we get people from their their 
early to mid 20s all the way through the 50s plus um, who were using the systems. Everything in between. And like, so I grew up in a house where we had compost and emptying the compost was one of the worst things that you had to do as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old because you'd take this thing that was already partially decomposed and you'd go down to this part of the garden that was full of spiders uh-huh. and then you'd lift this metal lid off and then when you lifted it off, there was all this other stuff growing up inside of it and then that smell was horrendous. Like It was just not ideal as a seven- or eight-year-old. And then that was the end of the journey. I don't ever know what happened after. There was no plants growing out of it. It was basically like a big metal half of a water tank that had been kind of cut in half. I guess the thing that I'm asking here is that did you did you observe a product where the product execution itself actually wasn't that great? Forgetting community and the zeitgeist and all this other stuff, but the actual delivery of the product was, was suboptimal and it was potentially stopping a whole bunch of people who would probably be more than happy to or even enjoy composting as part of a larger connection with nature from actually doing it? Yeah, that's right. So I had almost an identical experience to you as a as a child <laughs> up in the northern rivers this yeah big heavy soupy bucket that might get emptied once a fortnight and Ooh. you know pretty yeah pretty terrible experience <laughs> um <laughs> but we had so many chickens and things that would get in there and and that's just not the way most people are living um, and so i I was looking for something that I could get involved with that would give me entry into working with soil and and talking about soil health and the circular economy when I met Andrew, who originally designed the prototypes and saw what he was doing from the kind of the user experience and design thinking context and thought, wow, this is actually really powerful. It's simple to use. People get it immediately and it takes away so many of the of those problems uh. that people just don't want to deal with and, and causes them to have these terrible experiences that make them give up. So that that was really the motivation for thinking, hang on, this is maybe the product that with some commercial design skill and, and marketing, we could actually create something of impact here. And I'd just previously um, helped set up a, another business called Flowhive, which was around beekeeping oh, and honey. honey. And yeah. Yeah, right. So <laughs> I done all the marketing, e-commerce and set up their communities and things as well and was looking for somewhere I could take that learning and work with soil because it it was, you know, one of my my big passions and something I'd been interested in for a long time. Hence the (laughs) T-shirt. Hence the (laughs) T-shirt. Plants that he'd sing songs for those who weren't playing along earlier. It kind of comes back to one of our T-shirts actually. I'll have to get one. (laughs) It comes back to something that I thought may have been part of this as well. And you, you mentioned before that the amount of cost that it still was, you know, a quarter of a million bucks to go out and get a mold built to be able to make some of these to solve the problem barring the initial prototypes. But we do live in a world now where, you know, things can be 3D printed, things can be shipped, DTC, like direct to consumer e-commerce brands are a hundred times easier to set up now than they were even 10 years ago. Maybe not a hundred times simpler to make successful, but the tools to, to bring things like this to market have certainly become a lot, lot more accessible. Uh, forgetting the market conditions for a minute, but would have been, it would executing this a decade ago have been viable or possible, do you think? Or are we part of now in a market where the, the, it's, there's a much lower barrier to get into market if you do have a good idea and, and a good path to market with it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
the the tools make it possible for sitting regional area in Australia with customers in 26 countries and that just wasn't possible yeah probably 10 years ago I was working back then doing a bit of web development work but e-commerce was a very different industry 10 or 15 years ago right. and the systems were much harder to use higher barrier to entries and yeah, it's, it's made it easier to launch something like this. I don't think things have changed in terms of the playbook for actually building a viable long-term brand, but in terms of actually launching and giving something a go, it is easier mm. these days, for sure. And good segue as well, because is, is, that, is that your background, being in being brand building and, and understanding how to build like commercial or customer propositions? Is that Look, it's it's part of my my background. I have a <laughs> I have an interesting background, Please, so I don't, I don't have a tra- traditional <laughs> education in it. As I said, gr- I grew up in that kind of alternative community, so I guess a lot of the playbook that I've adopted has come from the activism movement. My family and the community that I grew up in were part of forest ac- activism, social activism around social justice issues in Australia and things. And and one of the things I found interesting as I've over the years got into sales and marketing because I wasn't qualified for anything <laughs> and taught myself along the way, but I'm always curious and reading histories. And I found that, that a lot of the original internet marketers back in the 80s in Silicon Valley actually came out of the activism movement yeah. and, and took those principles into what became direct response online marketing. So it was quite interesting for me yeah, to come find those, those past meetings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably not going to do it justice to try and unpack it in a couple of minutes, but you talked about these principles of activism. Can you give me a little more color on that? Yeah. So I guess the school of thought that I grew up around a lot was, yeah, funnily enough, a lot around systems theory and systems thinking and and how do we kind of create movements that can make change in the positive change in the world. So how do you present a problem in a way that's going to get some attention and create some kind of action and maybe some examples of that from the past might be the the forest action Mm -hmm. movement up in northern New South Wales that my family were a part of in the early days. I was a very small baby at the time. but Didn't chain you to a tree, just just themselves, presumably? My father was arrested with me, me on, you know, baby pouch on his back (laughs) at the protesters' falls, which is the first successful forest action in Australia that really saved a a large piece of old growth rainforest early 80s and then more recently in our Northern Rivers area, the coal seam gas issue at, at Bentley, where the huge part of the community came together to create action that that stopped coal seam gas fields coming up in in our area, uh-huh. and so that there's a lot of principles you learn about how to bring a community together around a, a purpose when you're growing up on the edges of those movements uh-huh. and just seeing groups of people trying to figure out how to live a way that maybe is has less impact on the planet is is more fair. That was just kind of the the conditions I was raised in, that that's what the whole alternative movement was was about and, and still is about. And some of it is can be naive and misguided at times, but there's also a lot of gold there. Yeah. I, I, it's funny as well because I think, and I, I kind of made the, made the remark about chaining yourself to a tree. I think I'm using it to put us in the context, but 
I think there's a, a misconception that someone who's prepared to take that type of action is completely anti-capitalist, anti the idea of creating a product and selling a product and making a profit. And I, I think this this idea of these things, these worlds of Venn diagrams that should never intersect, is actually not what modern activism looks like, in my opinion. And I think it's now clear that there's a way to be true to the values and the purpose that you espouse and, and want to be part of, but then also combine that with something that actually brings a product into the world that people pay for and makes a profit that allows a reinvestment into more of the action that, that is aligned to those values. Is that kind of a leap? That it, a, do you agree? I'm happy for you to disagree, but also is that kind of a leap that you had to make or did you kind of, was it a natural evolution of kind of how you grew up and where you went from there? How did that kind of play out for you? Yeah, look, it's definitely a misconception, I think, and that a lot of people hold that everyone who maybe wants to see less impact on the planet and a more fair society doesn't want to be involved in the messy business of business. And, And that's certainly a lot of people out there. For me, the way that I think about it and the way I was brought up is to think long-term. A lot of people, talk, when they talk about the narrative maybe of, of the climate crisis, it's about we've got to, you know, we've got to save the planet. And my context is, well, the planet's going to be fine. <laughs> if you think in billions of <laughs> yeah. years, we're just a little yeah, a blip. little blip. And the surface uses, I think, George Carlin's direct quote was. <laughs> And, and so really it's about do, do we want to extend the conditions that make our life and civilizations here and quality of life, everything that is important to us, uh-huh. to, do we want that to be possible for a period of time that we than we might have now? Yeah. And so that, that's how I think about it. And, and that, that also where that has taken me over the years is, is thinking, well, there's, it's, there's really not a lot of value in the long term if I'm sitting in a little corner of, of the country in a, in, a, in a valley doing the things that I want to do that maybe are living a bit lightly on the planet, but I'm just ignoring what's happening out in the, the rest of the world right. because that's where the, the real game is afoot. Mm-hmm. And so I think about this as cultural change. So we've, we've got to go out and participate in culture and be part of, be part of the cultural conversation and make things like environmental and social good be attractive as something for, for mainstream people. And that that is a big change that's happened over the years. And I think we hopefully are at a tipping point. The caveat for that might be, you know, the early 90s, we had that as well. Uh, not many people remember I was part of a, you know, a teenage um, environmental activism group then. And we, we had Severne Suzuki get up at the Rio de Janeiro UN summit and give her amazing keynote address. She was the Greta Thunberg of my yeah. generation. Yeah. And then what and then, then we kind of went on the biggest growth binge yeah. in human history after that. So yes, there's we're in a in another moment in time where it's possible to shift things and make a change. Just because we're focused on it right now as a society doesn't necessarily mean that we're done and dusted. But it, it's a time now where we can hopefully with with understanding and compassion for other people's points of view talk about it in a way that feels accessible and bring more people along because really as i said it's not about are we saving the planet it's about are we saving ourselves and everything we hold dear yeah i guess the life that individually and collectively we've become accustomed to <laughs> that's right that's <laughs> or, right. or even a better version of that hopefully 
Just coming back as well to, to subpod specifically, as at the time of recording this, just finished a pretty reasonable crowdfunding thing, I would say. I don't know what the right <laughs> words are, but have executed that well. I'm trying to understand what the road ahead looks like for you. You've got customers in 26 countries. From memory, you've sold about 16,000 of these things. Is that right? Subpods? Uh, 60, about 64,000 64, to take. Sorry. Yeah. Four times the number I just said, which is amazing. And you talked about it's not enough to be sitting in the Northern Rivers, living lightly on the land. Like what's, what's the next big hill? What's the next big thing in front of you that you're trying to tackle? And like, what's the battle here? And like, how are you thinking about that? And like, what's, you know, what are the big enablers for you in terms of executing that, do you think? Sure. So really where we're focusing at the moment on making our systems more accessible for, for people in urban, dense urban areas. That's a, a big focus because as cities and urbanisation is, is a huge global trend and, and it's where, where we have the most waste, you know, by volume. Uh-huh. If we're looking at, at cities as a whole, they're actually often more efficient just because of the density of uh-huh. living. But these types of practices where you're actually engaging with nature and growing a bit of food and things can be fairly rare in a city. So we're trying to build systems that that fit into everyday life for people in urban areas. So we've recently released a, a balcony version of our um, garden system. So it's a, a raised bed on wheels with a subpod in it so you can grow food around the outside and, and com- compost um, your food waste, you know, on a balcony or in a courtyard and, and also building um, accessories around that that fit with the urban lifestyle. So the next version of our community will have IoT connectivity so you're able to monitor what's happening in your garden and composting system and get your reminders because people are busy and we do need those behavioural cues. So that that's really uh, an important part of the puzzle for us. Sure. And and with our larger s- systems as well, where we're getting more and more pilots in places like um, residential developments where they might have you know, up to 50 subpods that are that are being managed by a community and, and groundskeepers. So being able to allow people to, to do it collectively oh. and have started talking to agrihood managers in, in America that agrihoods are a huge and growing part of the real estate sector, especially places so like California. Is it like an agricultural neighbourhood? Is that what that That's is? That's right. <laughs> so people who want to live close to nature and have those ideals but they don't want to have a farm, so they they oh. might they move into a community that that will have agricultural activities on the fringe, and sustainably built homes uh, and apartments for the residential piece. Does this exist so, in Australia as well, or this is just the phenomenon that's emerging out of the US, or where's that come? I have not heard the term before. There there are some in, in Australia and growing, but America is really the place where they're they're happening on a larger scale. No, no. I mean, if you look to Europe, it's a model that that's been used over there for a really long time where often there'll be communities with shared gardens and, and all kinds of things. But okay. this is, in America, it's a fairly new phenomenon yeah. that you might have, like some of the larger ones will have up to 30,000 residents when they're, they're fully complete. Oh. So, that's yeah, idea. it's a growing trend. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd love to find someone who's developing those because I imagine there'd be a lot of competing interests but also complementary aspects to how you build one of those total different rabbit hole to go down i do have a couple of follow-on questions just on the balconies and on the commercial side because we didn't t- touch on it too much i'm kind of reminded of a conversation that we had with julia and geordie k over at great rap 
where they released a compostable glad wrap or saran wrap for us people cling wrap for the uk people i think but anyway but ultimately they saw that the massive lever here was to change the wrap that was being used in these commercial contexts rather than necessarily at home where there actually isn't there was only about 10 15 percent of the usage from memory do you have a similar situation here where there's a lot of food waste happening in households and we start there because we start with community but a lot of the big levers are companies or actually there's huge amounts of food waste on both sides of the ledger and really you've got to be tackling all this to really hit the dial. How does that breakdown actually look? Oh, look, there is huge amounts on both sides of the ledger. We're far, far from from solving the on-site at-home food waste issue. That's been our focus partly just because of our background as a company having that ability to scale as a consumer brand quickly mm-hmm. has been really important for us. We've not had the luxury of having a huge amount of funding to be able to run at these big losses that are, you know uh, some startups do. Yep. And so the <laughs> consumer side, A, we were able to have a, a large cultural impact there uh. and, and we're able to have a large impact on people's food waste there. But we we're very interested in the in the commercial side, and that's why we continue to develop that side of the business and and have you know R and D partnerships with with a number of companies and organisations that are using our systems in that way, as well as schools, um, which are another schools are power users of our product too. So yeah. I think the largest school system uses fifty subpods and offs- really? and offsets the entire food waste is that a, is that a school in australia by the way or yeah it's it? a school in australia up in tweet heads yeah um, is doing that that's amazing yeah. i love that yeah <laughs> if, if yeah. you've got a link for that i'd love to put it they'd have a write-up of it somewhere i'd love to have a link to that in the show notes <laughs> yeah it's linda linda's fun college up in tweet heads i'll, I'll send you a link yeah to it. yeah it's fascinating and is it like when you just talked before about a cultural movement is the aspiration here for Kind of a subpod in every home. Is that kind of how you think? Whether it's your subpod or someone else's subpod, is, is there kind of until there's one in every home, you'd think why wouldn't there be? Is that is that kind of your mental model? Yeah, I mean that that's the mental model. Is everyone should be doing their part, composting as much as they can at home, huh. and and it's a model that has kind of regulatory validation as well. We have councils providing rebates for composting systems in Australia. If you look at the US, increasingly there's there's strong regulation there too. So California's recently introduced composting laws where you have to separate food waste and ideally compost at home. Oh. There'll be fines coming in as part of that from 2024. And there's just not enough infrastructure there to to do everything as offsite composting anyway china's another example they have to in many provinces they now separate their home waste into eight different waste streams um, for processing wow it, every, everywhere you look in the world waste is a huge problem and we're starting to regulate for it because it's something that we don't think about um but but is one of the biggest problems we have in the world mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's direct correlation to the things we consume and the size of the number of people consuming so both of those things haven't gone down to your point since the mid early nineties. So that's kind of where we are. Um, and I think we're at time today, which was you know I feel like there's a lot more rabbit holes that we can go down today. But I guess I just have as one last question, like in terms of a, is there a specific thing that is you know would be an ask of you? You're massively community minded. I'm guessing you give back a lot and, and to the community that you serve. But in terms of the people who might be listening today, in terms of the things that you're focused on, anything that is front of mind that you'd be like, we'd love to hear from people who know this or consider why or might be able to help us with that? 
Yeah, look, we're always happy to hear from people who are thinking differently and thinking on a systems level about things like soil health, urban biodiversity, food waste, and as well as we are a, a young startup, so people who might have bright ideas and, and are a bit commercially minded who, who might want to get in touch with opportunities to work and collaborate with us. So always happy to hear from the community. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you, Sadi, for joining us today. It was um, a pleasure talking to you. And I'm, now that I know I can use one indoors with my cold environment, I'm going to sort that out in the meantime. And next time we chat, I'm going to have a plant seed sing songs t-shirt on for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Vincent. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change a system for the better, please go to www.shapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click Subscribe so that you get the new episode. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. Connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you are looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.